Today's show is brought to you by BCB Group. You're going to be hearing more about them later on. But for now, let's get to today's conversation, which was filmed on Wednesday, March 9th. Before we get into it, do yourself a favor and subscribe to the BlockWorks YouTube channel so you can get access to more interviews like this one. Incredibly excited for this conversation. Two profound thinkers talking a lot about macro. There's so much going on. We've got Luke Groman, founder of Forest for the Trees, and Jim Bianco, president of Bianco Research. Gentlemen, welcome to Forward Guidance. Thanks for having us on. Thanks for having us. Luke, you wrote something of a bombshell of a report, and I just want to start by this. Uh, This was two weeks ago when Russia first invaded Ukraine. You wrote, 40 years of globalization, disinflation, and a bond bull market likely died. Pax Americana likely ended. Uh, on Wednesday night, referring to the night when Russia invaded Ukraine. What exactly did you mean by that? Why is is this such a pivotal moment? Uh, I think nominally what we're watching is about Russia invading Ukraine. I think the bigger game that is afoot, and, and since I wrote this, the preponderance of the evidence, even what I had at the point when I wrote that has grown, which is China is really in support of Russia in this. And I think ultimately the strategy here, the big game, is uh, an attempt, is, is basically Putin leveraging two things. I think he acutely understands that the peak cheap oil uh, dynamics that exist in the world for uh, today and have for some time uh, means that the world cannot remove his energy from the mix of the global supply without a global economic calamity. I think he understands that. And I think we're seeing uh, early uh, indications that so far he's looking correct on that. And then I think the other thing that, the other real driver and, and what gave me the conviction to say that was that, and this is the part that I think is wildly underappreciated by most on Wall Street, which is the US's sovereign balance sheet, the West's sovereign balance sheet more broadly uh, is critical context for what's happening. What I mean by that is neither an inflation spike, which we're seeing, nor a recession, which I think we're going to see, are policy options that are available to the United States. Uh, We can't take that pain because our debt to GDP is so high. Because if you look at, for example, the big uh, three expenditure items in the U.S., so treasury spending, entitlement pay goes, and defense alone are 120% of tax receipts, uh, which are at all-time highs, inflated by 12% nominal GDP last year. Um, and we still can't cover just those big three items. And so there is, um, I, and I think we're seeing a manifestation of this, you know, when you see the United States flying to Venezuela, flying to Iran and panhandling for oil effectively, like we've seen over the last week. I think it's sort of a proof positive that basically this gambit by Putin, who I think knows he could not have done it without China's support. And so I think that's why um, he's doing it. And, and clearly we've seen more indications of that. I think when you then say, well, why? What are they after? And what the report I wrote two weeks ago noted is if you go back through history, going back 50 years, um, Eurasia broadly, Europe, Russia, China, India, um, uh, basically the entire Eurasian continent at one time or another in the last 50 years has expressed intense dissatisfaction with the global currency system as it's been structured for the last 50 years. And so to me, I saw um, somebody yesterday tweet, I thought it was a really good thread, I forget who it was, but he's a 
PhD in historical uh, Russian military conquests. And what he said is a common theme is opportunism. They, they see an opportunity and they push. And to me, it's exactly what we're watching. So when I look at all of this, I think it all died because ultimately I think it's going to force the Fed to uh, increase dollar liquidity, print money into an inflation spike. And that's going to trigger a lot of these changes in addition to some of the other things. So I'll pause there. But that's that's really what I started seeing when I wrote that or what I had in mind when I wrote that. There's a dynamic at play in the last couple of weeks that I've been trying to get my head around. And that's this whole idea of self-sanction. That these companies are coming out, you know, multiple companies a day and announcing that they're going to do less business with Russia. And what I'm wondering is, is the Western governments really in control of this? Or is this really being driven by world opinion through social media? Basically, Twitter's driving this. Let me give you one example. Shell. On Friday, all, first of all, back up. All last week, Shell said, Russia's terrible and evil, and we're going to get out of all of our joint ventures in Russia. And then on Friday, Shell Trading buys a cargo of crude oil. They put out a press release explaining it. They're still being boycotted and they're still being nasty things said to them on social media. They put out a second press release. Then on Sunday, they announced that the profits are going to go to Ukrainian relief. Then on Monday, they say they're not going to buy any more crude oil. This is not governments driving this. This is social media driving it. And what I'm concerned about is if we need to find an end to this conflict and we need to find an off-ramp, we're not going to get that through social media. We're going to just get, we must, we must cancel Putin like we cancel everybody else on social media. And you don't want to cancel a guy with a thousand nuclear weapons. Do you have any thoughts about that? Or have you thought of, do you share that observation that I, I see? I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but hearing you say that, it's a perfect expression of, of something I have been noticing. And I, and I think it's interesting and I find it ironic. I, I, I find my, I don't want to laugh because it's, it's a tragic situation. And unfortunately, I think it's going to get more tragic in part due to these reactions. But uh, the same people that three months ago were taking energy policy lessons from a 16-year-old girl um, uh, are now completely going the other way and saying, well, we need to, we need to do this. We need to, um, and it's very reactionary, like you said. And when you think about trying to global strategy, geostrategic moves, geopolitical moves, trying to run a country, uh, all of these things, uh, it's not conducive, uh, particularly when you think about these American corporations are arguably really probably the best uh, drivers of soft power. And they're sort of flailing all over the place. They're just being, hey, it's popular on Twitter. Let me do this. Um, it's not going to be popular when if there's gas lines in the U.S. It's not going to be popular if people are freezing in the dark. So they're, I don't think they're thinking ahead. They just want to do what's popular now to sort of so they can virtue, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, virtue signal um, what they think is popular at the moment. You contrast that with what I think Russia and you know Russia and and China have done. It came out last week that China has been stockpiling massive quantities of grains for three or four months. Uh, you, 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 Russia has spent the last eight years hardening its, its domestic food situation, its domestic economy, so that while it's going to hurt, it, doesn't, it won't not have very much that is essential. Um, 
And so there's been a level of strategic calculations you can see on one side being met by virtue signaling on the other rather than serious. I mean, even the fact that our State Department is flew to Venezuela and Iran, to me, is a perfect example. We've spent 20 to 40 years um, trying to overthrow these countries. I mean, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for those conversations. Um, hey, I know we've been trying to overthrow you for 20 years, Venezuela, but we need some oil now. And I know you're a, a client state of Russia, and I know that China is your biggest client and customer, and I know you've actually been pricing oil in Yuan since 2017, but can you spare a dime? Like, and, and I think ultimately it's it's a manifestation of something I've described as you know, if you fly an airplane based on looking at the ground as you go whizzing by, you know, if you take off from O'Hare and you start going to San Francisco and you, you navigate the airplane looking down at the ground, and you, wow, I'm doing great. You're going to go great for a couple of hours. And then you're going to hit the Rocky Mountains and you're going to be really surprised um, how ungreat things are going. And I think that's what we're watching in real time, which is disheartening at times and disappointing. And this is something new that we have not seen in a long time. And so it'll be interesting to see. I've, I've kind of termed this that this might be the last kinetic war, shooting war, meeting the first digital war, because we're starting to realize. I know that the narrative is sanctions don't work. Well, yeah, they haven't worked, but we have a global interconnected economy, as you pointed out, that we've never seen before. We could, we could really, we being the globe, could really hurt one another with devastating sanctions if that's what we choose to do in a new digital world. And it seems like we're doing that. And it seems like the driver of all of this is the Twitter mob. And if that is the, what's going on, I'm, I'm worried. I mean, I've never liked when, the way that we cancel anybody. And now we're starting to cancel them financially. And now we seem to be wanting to cancel a country through social media and Look, I'm not saying that I'm in favor of what Russia is doing. It's terrible and they deserve all the you know, pain and suffering that comes with that. But I am worried that we might be going overboard in the other direction. Everybody's making all these little micro decisions for themselves, but there's no macro strategy involved in it. And, uh, you know, I'm just worried, you know, if the goal is to settle things down, if the goal is to find a compromise, you know, are we just irritating the Russian public with all of these sanctions. Well, we're going to destroy the Russian economy. Do they? Do we think that the answer to that is going to be, well, Russia will, the Russian people will rise up and they will throw Putin out and they will find their version of Thomas Jefferson to take over uh, for that? I mean, be, I mean, be careful. Look, I'm not against them rising up and throwing the guy out. It's just that uh, history has shown us that usually the next guy in charge is not much better than the last guy. Anybody remember Boris Yeltsin and how that went? And that's why you got Putin after him. Hmm. I want to hone in on the commodity point because you know a lot of people are talking about China as a big winner, but I think China is a big importer of commodities and the prices of wheat, of natural gas, nickel, oil have absolutely skyrocketed over the past three weeks to levels that you know people never never would have thought. You know, Jim, I, I saw you write on Twitter that the price of natural gas had its fastest price appreciation in history. You know, the, the price of oil now is down today. Uh, it's only $120, having gone down from, from $130. So what are the knock-on effects? You know, uh, the point is made often that 
a huge commodity bull markets often precede recessions because they they kill demand. Is that a risk here, Jim? And sort of how how are you thinking about the different probabilities here? Yeah, I think that that is a real risk. Uh, you know, let's start with commodities and um, the statistics that we've heard a lot of is that ten percent of world uh, grain exports come out of the Ukraine, another nine percent come out of Russia in the same area. It's been described, I haven't been there, but it's been described as imagine you're looking at Nebraska and Kansas and it's four times the size uh, in terms of what they produce. All of that grain, 90% of that grain gets shipped out of there via cargo ship through the Black Sea. The Russians have now sunk a couple of cargo ships in the Black Sea and cargo ship owners cannot get insurance to because no one's going to sail in there without insurance. Or if they can, it's 20 or 30x what it was a month ago. So it becomes prohibitively expensive. So there's not going to be any shipments or very, very few shipments, which is why you've seen this rocketing higher of food prices, rocketing higher of energy prices, you know, as well, too. Uh, Two things about that. First of all, take one country, for example, Egypt. 90% of their imported grains comes from the Ukraine. Uh, Egypt was this, the place that when food prices spiked in 2011, they had food protests, which led into the Arab Spring. You've got 2 billion people on the planet that are basically barely making it along. And now you're going to raise food prices by 50, 80 percent in a matter of a couple of weeks. And that eventually gets passed along to them. That's going to be a big problem, especially for countries like Egypt that have seen this already 10 years ago. Uh, as well, too. As far as China goes, I know a lot of people say, okay, um, Russian oil, Russian grains, we're all going to ship that to China eventually. And what I mean by eventually is if there's 5 million barrels of Russian oil a day right now that's not getting out because companies like Shell don't want to touch it, Western companies don't want to touch it. Oh, well, then the Chinese will buy it. Yeah, but they don't have the infrastructure to just immediately turn on 5 million barrels of oil a day. Now they can ramp it up over a period of a year or two, but not over a period of a week or two. So the the Russians will have this oil. It's in fields with pipelines going towards Europe. It is not, they can't change those pipelines immediately to making those, that oil go to China. Yes, over a year or two they can, but not immediately. So the prices that we see in a lot of this stuff is going to stay high. And the statistic that I've thrown out is that not every recession is led by a big 50% rise in energy prices. But every 50% rise in energy prices we've seen has led a recession. And we have a 50% rise in energy prices. Now, the bull case you could make is maybe there's a settlement or a ceasefire and the prices collapse back down. I just don't mean today. Today is more about margin. The day we're recording you know, we had a big reversal down in the price of crude oil. It's down $10 off its high. But a lot of that is margin trading. And a lot of that is speculators exiting positions that they finally can. But if you want to make the case that there might be a ceasefire and it, you know, and we're going to go back down to $85 a barrel, not go from 128 to 122, um, then yeah, maybe we could stave off the recession. But if we're going to stay at these prices, if we're going to stay with wheat at $13, up from $7 a month ago or two months ago. And we're going to stay with crude oil prices at $125, $130, up from $85 a month or two months ago. There's going to be a big problem with the world economy. It's going to really hurt growth. I, I agree with Jim. I think it's a significant problem. We had 
did a, did a report about a month or two ago just highlighting that with oil at 80 or 85, uh, something we watch is U.S. US uh, oil consumption, uh, oil and products as a percent of GDP. And you can look at it back over the last, I don't know, 50 or 60 years. And basically, every time it crosses 3% on the upside with some authority, uh, uh, you've had a recession. And when we did the chart, we updated it, I want to say it was at 2.8 or 2.9% of GDP. And so even if you make some allowance to say, maybe we're working more from home, where cars are more fuel efficient, you're, you're still getting close. Uh, and you've, you've absolutely blown through that threshold of what we've seen over the last, uh, last two weeks. So I think Jim's right on, and I think he's right on about the, um, the lag in supply chains, both on the food side and, and on the energy side, uh, vis-a-vis China. The thing I think that, uh, that we haven't gotten to yet, or that much of Wall Street hasn't gotten to yet, is the implication of a recession. Uh, it's been 100 years since you've seen developed market uh, balance sheets, sovereign balance sheets, look the way they have, really since in the aftermath of World War I. Um, when you had commodity supply chain disruptions with sovereign balance sheets looking like that in Europe in the 1920s, um, you had um, a 10-year basically depression in the UK where unemployment never went below 8% from 1921. Uh, until 1937, uh, you had the Germans hyperinflate, the Austrians hyperinflate, the Russians hyperinflate, the French severely uh, uh, devalue the franc twice, um, the Japanese significantly devalue, and the UK ultimately in 1931 significantly devalued the pound. Uh, they were well on their way of losing global reserve status by that point, part and parcel to what had transpired over the last 15 years. And uh, the U.S. finished it all up as the creditor to that whole mess, devaluing the dollar significantly in 1933. So the point is, is that nobody alive trading has ever seen sovereign balance sheets uh, in the shape they're in in the West. Now, if you're an emerging markets trader or emerging markets investor, uh, if you just take the masthead off, it says United States at the top of the U.S. sovereign balance sheet, it looks like any number of disastrous situations you've seen um, over the last 20 years. Turkey, Argentina, you know, these twin deficit nations. We've, had, um, we've, we've been living on borrowed time vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the dollar's reserve status. Uh, what it means uh, uh, is that you're, you're into this situation with not just the debt, but as I mentioned before, the deficit side, right? The, we, we, historically, the U.S. has not gone into a recession in, in um, at least 50 years with U.S. deficits uh, below, uh, or excuse me, above um, roughly 2.5% of GDP. They're 10 to 12% of GDP now. And we haven't had a recession in the U.S. Uh, other than the March 2020 recession. Um, uh, we've never had a recession where foreign central banks aren't buying enough treasuries. Um, and we saw the outcome to that in March 2020, which was stocks crashed for 12 days. And then 12 days in, the treasury market started crashing alongside the stock market, uh, which is, you know, Stan Druckenmiller gave a great interview saying, I've, I've never seen that before. I've been doing this 40 years. I've never seen treasuries crash. That was a regime shift. And that's where I'm going with this, which is if we have a global slowdown, global recession, uh, into a period where U.S. tax receipts aren't even covering entitlements, treasury spending, and defense before uh, receipts start falling, 
at a time where the federal deficit as a percent of GDP is at a starting point, three to four X levels we usually enter a recession in, where debt is at 122% instead of 100 or 80 or 60, where we've started the last three recessions, Wall Street has is, is been conditioned by the last 40 years to think anytime there's an inflation spike, the Fed reacts. And I think the big aha or oh shit moment, excuse my language, that is about to happen on Wall Street in the next month, two months, three months, uh, based on your positioning, uh, aha, if, you, if you're long commodities and, and short the dollar, or, or uh, oh shit, if it's the vice versa, is the Fed's going to have to increase dollar liquidity into this inflation spike, not because of, uh, you know, they want an inflation spike, but because the U.S. sovereign balance sheet is in such unprecedentedly bad shape uh, for going into a recession, for a decline in tax receipts. And so I think that's where when, when you overlay uh, what, what Jim was talking about, which I agree entirely with, uh, with the sovereign balance sheet, there's very little overlaying of this situation and of the Russia-Ukraine uh, situation with the U.S. sovereign balance sheet. Europe's in pretty much the same shape, um, uh, but Europe's not the, the reserve currency issuer. Europe's current account is in much better shape than the U.S.'s. So I, I think that's going to be a really interesting situation to develop in terms of the Fed's uh, response function and particularly the Fed's response function relative to what I think is overwhelming consensus is don't worry, the Fed will fight inflation. Jim, so the last time we spoke, you had a view that the Federal Reserve had to act fast and would act fast. And the market was definitely on your side, pricing it, I don't know, about seven to eight rate hikes. And even you know, folks at Goldman Sachs were forecasting 11 rate hikes, a very you know huge number. Uh, since then, the geopolitical turmoil and the, the sell-off in stocks, as well as sentiment, has eased a little bit. I think I don't know exactly how many rate hikes we're, we're pricing it now, but we are we are fewer. Has how has your uh, uh, thinking changed since we last spoke? And and what did you make of you know, what's your analysis of Luke's view that the Federal Reserve has to actually ease monetary conditions into an inflationary period? Okay, so here's where the uh, conversation gets interesting because I'm going to take the other side of that equation. Uh, I think the Fed has no choice but to fight inflation. And I think that they are going to create a recession and they are going to break things uh, because ultimately it might be worse if they don't do that. So let me start with the big picture. The biggest economic event, I believe, of our lifetime was COVID. Economic event. We sent everybody home for a year. That has profoundly changed the workforce. Work from home, remote work is now a thing. As a result of that, it has profoundly changed our consumption basket. Well, now that I don't drive to work, maybe at all or less, and I remote work, I require different things than I used to require. Maybe like the way what I'm dressed with today, my fleece, I wear different clothes than I did. Most companies are following the Dave Solomon uh, edict. Dave Solomon is the chairman of Goldman Sachs, who has been leading the charge. Everybody must come to work five days a week, or if you're Goldman, it's six days a week, 10 hours a day. And I believe, this is Dave Solomon speaking, that in five years, New York City will look exactly like it looked in 2019 and nothing will have changed. Now, I think that he's an outlier, but I do think that most people recognize that things are changing, but they don't know how. So why do we have a supply chain problem? We have a supply chain problem because we are buying and requesting different things and less things everywhere else. And the manufacturers and the suppliers are not sure what to do. 
So they're ordering everything and they're shipping everything. And that's why there's this chronic supply problem, which, by the way, the Russia-Ukraine war is only going to make worse from here. So we have an inflation problem and it's big and it's real. Now, let me turn to one other thing. Look at political polling. The president's approval rating and Congress's approval rating, now they're Democrats, and if they were Republicans, I'd say the same thing, is getting annihilated. It is absolutely getting annihilated. And if you ask in political polls, what is the number one issue? Suffolk University did a poll last week for USA Today to just explain one. 51% of the American public thinks we're in a recession right now. 21% of the American public thinks we're in a depression right now. Asked what is the biggest problem in the country, 27% said it's inflation. 15% said it's racial justice and nothing else was over 10%. So you can't emphasize enough, inflation is the issue in the country right now. And the public is in a very raw mood about their dollar buying them less things every two weeks. President Biden has talked about inflation. And he has said on repeated occasions, here's what, and literally he said this at his press conference last month, here's what we're going to do about it. The job to make sure inflation doesn't become entrenched falls to the Federal Reserve. A critical job in making sure that the elevated prices don't become entrenched rests with the Federal Reserve. He basically said to the public, you're mad. You're pissed off about inflation. There's this guy named Jay, and he works in this big marble building in New York, um, excuse me, in in Washington called the Federal Reserve, he's going to fix it for you. And last week at Senate testimony, when Senator Shelby asked Jay Powell a question that in 1980, Paul Volcker, or the 1980s, Paul Volcker rose rates, hiked rates so much, he created a recession to break the inflation, uh, to break inflation. Do you think you'd have to do that again? And Jay Powell's answer was, I think history will show that the answer is yes. So they are fully prepared to fight this inflation thing. They have been given their instructions to fight inflation. And I think in what I've been trying to say, why does the market still think that there's six rate hikes? Luke is right about all of the debt. And Luke is right about all of the problems that we're going to have in the economy. But what's worse, a 30 or 40% decline in stock prices? or 10% inflation. Remember that 40% of the American public has less than $1,000 and they rent. Those people are just getting annihilated because of inflation. They don't own their home. They didn't have a stock portfolio or they didn't own spiders and watch them go up 29% last year. And they all they know is every time they go to the pump, every time they go to the store, they get less. And the Fed has been given that mandate to deal with that problem. So I've been saying, I think the Fed is going to raise rates six or seven times. But I've also been saying it is going to invert the yield curve. It is going to probably precipitate a recession. And we might see further declines in risk markets like stocks because of it. And they're going to look at it and say, the alternative is worse. The alternative to say, look, we can't raise rates. We can't allow things to go down. If we have to deal with 10% inflation, well, so be it. I think they think that that is worse. And I might add, I don't think they're necessarily wrong. In other words, the Fed waited so long to deal with this. The day we're recording, by the way, uh, Jack, March 9th, is the last day of QE. This is the last purchase that they're going to do of QE. It finally ended today. 
uh, as far they've waited so long to deal with this inflation problem. All they have are trade-offs right now. They do not have a policy that will make risk markets and the and growth of the economy and inflation both happy at the same time. They did in 2020. They could print like crazy in order to help save off a 35% decline and a big rise of unemployment when 20 million people were unemployed. It worked because there wasn't inflation. But I don't know if it's going to work now because of inflation. So they've only got bad choices. They're going to have to make a bad choice. The president has already been hinting around at this, and I think the Fed knows this, about price controls. He said in his State of the Union address that he looked at shipping costs and he's warned about price controls. When he banned Russian oil the day we're recording, that was yesterday from the day we were recording, he also warned up against profiteering and he warned about price controls. And so if the Fed says, look, I, we can't raise rates seven times, we can't deal with inflation because we've got too much debt, and we might be worried about what would happen with growth. On the other side, the Democrats will say, fine, then we're going to just slap on price controls because the Democrats feel like they can't win in November with inflation. If you get rid of inflation, they still might not win, but that's a prerequisite to at least stemming their losses or potentially winning. And if, they, if the Fed doesn't do it, they're going to do it through price controls. So what Jim said makes a lot of sense. You know, Joe Biden, I don't know how much attention he pays to the, the flattening of the yield curve, but he pays a lot of attention to inflation because it, it impacts voting. And the pressure is on Jerome Powell, no doubt, to hike rates. Can you, Luke, can you explain in you know, pretty simple terms what what crack in the dam is going to appear that would stop the Fed from following the policy that Jim just described? You know, we're not talking about long-term debt cycles, not not talking about abstract, but specifically what would happen? Is it you know short? The dollar goes down, the dollar goes up. Is it long-term rates? You know, people selling treasuries. Uh, is it is it you know uh, credit spreads blowing out? Like, what do you think is going to be the signal that you say, mm hmm, this is a signal that the Federal Reserve cannot do what it wants and and high, uh, hike rates? We wrote a report. I guess it was April of 2020, and Powell gave a, a, a bunch of testimony. It was at a Powell testimony, but he and a couple other Fed officials kept referring to treasury market functioning. We're doing this because we need the treasury market to function properly. Um, and to me, what we said at the time is, I think the Fed just adopted a third mandate. It's, it's price stability, maximum employment, and treasury market functioning. And so I think the, the, the shadow third mandate is what I think is going to bite. It's already biting them, right? There was an article last week uh, on Bloomberg, for example, noting that traders are starting to advocate for the Fed to maybe create some facility to provide liquidity for the off-the-run treasury market because it's not trading well. The, the deepest, most liquid market in the world ain't so deep and ain't so liquid already. Uh, and we haven't even finished QE yet. Um, and so they, it, my guess is it'll be so, you'll, you'll start to see more things like this. Um, you can see the liquidity in the treasury market is already as stressed as it was um, as of last week, already as stressed as it was in March or April 2020. And we haven't even stopped bond buying yet. And uh, we haven't even gone into a recession where you're going to have significant increases in U.S. Treasury issuance countercyclically. We haven't even factored in the fact that two weeks ago the world, just, the U.S. just told the world that uh, your Treasuries are worthless in FX reserves, if we say so. And so you're probably going to see 
global central banks secularly selling treasuries. Um, you, we've not factored in usually what you usually get dollar strength leads to treasury selling uh, as well as, as the stronger dollar starts putting pressure on uh, foreign countries. So you've got a, a whole bunch of sellers, not a lot of buyers, regulatory, uh, regulatorily, um, uh, Wall Street can't sort of absorb that. Uh, and so I think the first cracks we're already seeing, and they haven't even stopped QE yet, which is treasury market dysfunction. And I think ultimately you've got this fundamental tension between the inflation mandate and the Fed's shadow third mandate, which is treasury market functioning properly. And so to me, it, it, it might be entirely possible that the Fed does actually hike rates a couple times, inverts the curve, um, uh, stops QE. Uh, but then they quietly uh, reinstate SLR, supplementary leverage ratio exemptions for the banks, which they put in place in April, which basically allows uh, the U.S. banking system to buy unlimited amounts of treasuries with no capital against it. It's QE done by the banks instead of by the Fed. Uh, I think you will see, I mean, you've already seen standing repo facility put in place uh, to try to make sure that the short end of the curve doesn't blow up on them like as happened in September 2019, which was ultimately a supply-demand mismatch. Um, none of these things will be QE. It'll be the difference of, you know, big slugs of, you know, a heroin injection into the left arm of the Fed via QE. And then instead, it, they've basically put in an IV and they're readying, you know, they're, they're hitting the bag and waiting the IV drip of the heroin in the right arm. Um, I think you could see some sort of, um, yeah, uh, treasury stability. It'll be some sort of Orwellian name, right? It'll be the, the treasury market stability or function functioning stability, you know, whatever. And it'll be QE. It won't be COVID. But it, I think also, it, if I'm them, they have, they're, they are, the Fed has been since April 2020 subject to their own impossible trilemma, right? Which was full employment, low inflation, and treasury market stability. The treasury market is now so big, they can't, they can't satisfy all three. And so what I think they're going to try to do is say they're fighting inflation, not really do it well, uh, say they're doing maximum employment, um, and then, which they actually do okay in this maximum employment, actually, and this is the thing that you will get. Um, and then they will say they're, you know, cutting QE and raising rates while sort of injecting liquidity in through the back door through some alphabet soup of standing repo, swap lines, market functioning thing. And so I think, I think we're already seeing the cracks. They're small cracks, um, but, but I think that that is, um, I think that's a key thing to watch. This episode is brought to you by BCB Group, Europe's leading provider of crypto-friendly business banking for institutions in the crypto space. They also provide trading services, allowing you to trade FX and cryptocurrency quickly and at scale. They specialize in efficient execution of large orders in illiquid markets. So if you are an institution looking to make high volume trades, you need to check out BCB Group because a great trade idea is worth nothing if you can't execute it. And that is exactly what BCB Group helps you to do. Their mission is to empower the global financial revolution through sustainable and innovative banking. Really glad to have them as a sponsor. So if you want to take control of your digital assets, please check them out at bcbgroup.com slash jack. That's bcbgroup.com slash jack. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. What I would argue is that the simplest way to get the Fed to not raise rates seven times is a recession. 
you know, and then you wind up killing demand and that takes care of the inflation problem um, at that point. But obviously we don't want it to be that way. I've used the analogy that that's like me going to the doctor and saying, I've got an infection in my leg and he pulls out the bone saw and says, it works every time. And I'm like, well, that's kind of not the way I wanted you to fix it. Uh, is, you know, so we don't want to fix the inflation problem with a recession. But if we wind up doing QE, um, in, or not call it QE, and I agree with Luke, that they'll, they'll find some acronym that they're going to wind up doing that no one understands, and they're going to try and support the markets. Then that keeps the pressure on the Fed in order to deal with the inflation problem, because if inflation doesn't go away, the Democrats are just not, and, I, and again, if there was the Republicans, they'd do the same thing. It's just they're the party in power. The Democrats are not just going to lay down and go, well, I guess it, we're just going to have to get killed in November. They're going to they're going to come right at us with price controls at that point. If the at least if Jake could just hike and hike and hike, he could say, hold on with the price controls. I'm working on it. Wait, you know, and stuff and maybe get them to wait on that. But they're already making a lot of noise about that. If you listen to AOC and Sanders and Warren and even the president themselves, they're tweeting all the time about price controls and that they need to bring in prices with price controls. And we all know price controls leads to shortages. It's never really worked. It makes things worse in the long run. But in this very, very short term, if you cap a price, it stops going up. And then you at least in the very short term, you get very short term relief. And then you wind up having the entire economics of that market go to hell because you've wound up creating artificial shortages in it as well, too. So I think that this whole thing about inflation, that's the game changer. That's what they were able, why they were able to get away with money printing in 2020, in 2008, and everything in between. Because every time they did it, inflation never appeared. But now that we've got inflation, and maybe we're going to get the headline 10% inflation number in the next few weeks, or few months, excuse me, because of soaring food prices and soaring energy prices because of the war, it's going to become politically impossible for them to not act aggressively about inflation. Luke, so so where in the curve do you think that they'll speed the, the the instability? Because it seems like you know everything that, that Jim just talked about sounds so visceral. You know, you have to inflation is, is so bad you're gonna to have to impose price controls, not seen since the nineteen seventies, on food, on oil, on shipping rates. That sounds so intense that if I'm the president, let's say, <laughs> crazy thought, if I'm the president, I'm paying way more attention to that than, you know, some economists telling me that the five year is trading, uh, you know, in a very volatile range that it's 95th percentile, you know, the bid ask spreads are very wide. I don't I'm not paying much attention to that. Like how how drastic is the treasury market illiquidity going to have to be for, you know, the, the authorities uh, uh, to start paying attention to that? So yesterday where we saw a market down, or two days ago, we saw the market down huge and TLT down huge uh, with gold up. Um, I think you, when it's, when you, I think that's sort of, you know, warning, warning, or warning signal one is probably just the DXY rising. Uh, warning signal two is, is um, I think stocks falling. And then I think warning signal three is, is stocks falling and treasury long end of the treasury curve falling with them in a, in a major way. And then I think warning signal number four is you start getting some crappy auctions. I gave an interview a couple weeks ago or maybe a month or so ago where someone asked me like, you know, what would you do? I mean, to me, the people running the show, if I were them, I'd be resigning right away. Like there's, a, you know, to Jim's point about trade-offs, there's you know, the, 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 the Democrats may not want 10% inflation, but the trade-off may be 10% unemployment. 
and um, and seven percent inflation, right? Because you know, in in all of this, um, you know, we talked about some of the war related stuff driving some of these things that the Fed can't do a darn thing about. So I I, I agree with the point that. Um, it's a lot less sexy. It's a lot less understood by the by 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 the president, by the public, in terms of hey, the treasury market's acting bad or you know badly. We we were having issues there, but it's acutely understood by uh, Yellen. It's acutely understood by uh, the Department of Defense, the Fed, and I just that to me I think is the governor on this thing where I think he's going to be real bold about it until he gets a really bad treasury auction. Then he's, you know, that's going to punch him in the nose, so to speak, and he's going to have to sort of rethink uh, what he really wants to do. You know, does he really want to break the treasury market? Because he's going to break, the, if he puts in a recession, he's going to break the treasury market. Does he really want to see the treasury market break? Um, you know, when I say break, basically stop, at, you know, you're, it's going to look like an emerging market, right? It's, in other words, when you have a recession in an emerging market, the currency goes down, the stock market goes down, and yields go up. And if he does this with our balance sheet where it is, you're going, and you've already been seeing this, you're going to see the stock market down, the currency down against gold, and yields up. And that's, that will be the thing that's a real mind blower is I think if he does institute a recession, you're going to see treasury yields rise, not fall, um, until it gets, you know, at least... Maybe not immediately, maybe for the first couple, three weeks, a month, but then you're going to see them like you did in March 2020, bottom and treasury yields start to rise into a recession. And that's going to put off, set off all sorts of alarm bells uh, in Washington. There's the, the treasury markets uh, volatility index, the move index. Merrill, it used to be the old Merrill option volatility index, which was invented by Harley Bassman uh, as well, too. That's at a 12 year high. Their, their volatility index on, is at a 12-year high. The yield curve was a year ago 180 basis points, two tens, and it's down. It hit 20 basis points, or actually slightly under it, earlier this week, and it's like around 23 basis points right now. This is all happening before the Fed actually raised rates. That's coming next week, the very first rate hike. We have never inverted. I, I've been tweeting this out and saying, We've never inverted the yield curve before the Fed started raising rates. It always comes at some part point in the rate hike process. Well, we got a chance of doing that. Um, the yield curve has already narrowed or flattened, come in 20 basis points in the last week, and it's at 20 right now. So uh, all what I see in the market is, and if you look at floating rate OIS spreads, which is a measure of unsecured loans from banks versus secured loan from banks, like a version of the TED spread, that's widening rapidly. It's still at a low level, but its rate of change is going straight up. All of this is happening before the Fed raises rates. All of this is happening. And as I mentioned earlier, today is the last day of QE. We haven't gotten to tightening yet. And the market is looking not very good right now. And so we haven't even leaned on it yet. It's just the talk of leaning on it has created all of these issues. So yeah, I agree that the 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 bond market's not in a good way. And I get it. And people look at it, go, what are you talking about? It's 189 in the 10 year. It was 189 a week ago. So it sounds like it's okay to me. Well, yeah, that, that but the way the bond market works is it's kind of looks okay until it's not okay. And then it kind of all goes sideways at once. So there are definite warning signs out there right now that there is problems with the bond market. And we haven't even started leaning on it. And when we start leaning on it, we'll have to see how much worse it gets.
in this environment where you see inflation so high forcing the Fed to hike rates that will ultimately cause recession, you know, with one of your base cases that you see, in that situation, what assets do well? You know, as Luke pointed out, stocks and bonds down together. That is exactly what we've seen year to date. You know, Jim, if you started the year as a veteran, you know, intelligent, uh, experienced Wall Street strategist saying, I'm, you know, going long stocks, I'm going long bonds to hedge my stocks if the stocks fall. And I, you know, a fool had said, I'm actually going short stocks and I'm short, I'm short, I'm hedging my short uh, stock position by shorting bonds. You know, Miraculously, I would have uh, you know made money and you would have lost money, uh, which and that's not supposed to happen. Um, what in, in this in this environment where stocks and bonds are, can go down together, you know, what do you want to invest in? You know, Wall Street shorthands this is the sixty forty portfolio, where you're sixty percent stocks and you're forty percent bonds, and this has been the basis of all wealth managers in the country. Right, you're sixty percent stocks, and so when the market goes up, you make money. Well, 40% bonds, when the market wobbles, you wind up having a risk-off rally in bonds, and then that cushions your blow on the downside. Because remember, why do people go to wealth managers? Because they're worried about the future. If, if I wasn't worried about the future, I just you know I would just buy levered S&Ps and ARK, and I'd call it a day. There we go. But I don't because, yeah, I'm worried. That's why I go to a wealth manager, and they put you in the 60-40 portfolio. That has worked tremendously till about a year ago. And why? Because we didn't have inflation. If you look back to the 70s and the 80s when we had inflation, and yes, we had it in the 80s, but we had inflation, we had declining inflation at that point, you saw that stocks and bonds were correlated together. They both went down together in the 70s, and they both went up together in the 80s. It was only in the 2000s when we started getting less inflation and talked about deflation that we saw that that relationship inverted. So I think that relationship's inverting back. So the whole idea around a 60-40 portfolio hasn't been working. And it won't work unless we get to another period of disinflation or deflation. Then that might work. So now, as you look at it, you have to then start to say, if the dominant feature is inflation, then what works in this environment? And the answer is, you know, anything inflation beneficiary, whether it's a commodity fund, whether it's, um, you know, basic materials, or energy, or any, or something that is associated with inflation. As my friend Dennis Gartman likes to say, if you could drop it on your toe, buy it, because it seems like that works very well as an investment theme right now. Uh, and so I think that that's what has been working. And as long as we have inflation, that's what will work. Only when inflation breaks can we start to think about healthcare versus financials versus consumer cyclicals or something along those lines. But in an inflationary environment, they're all going to suffer, at least at the top line. There might be some relative performance between them, but it will be relative performance in a declining market. Another way of looking at this, the metric I cited before, right, where with the big three U.S. expenditures are 120 percent of record tax receipts. Uh, when the Fed tightened in 2018, I also look at just your Treasury, you know, gross interest expense, Treasury plus pay as you go entitlements, right? So it's basically a what I call true interest expense. Um, it's it's uh, the pay as you go portion of entitlements are just the effective interest to float the hundred trillion dollar plus uh, entitlement off balance sheet obligations. Uh, those just the true interest expense uh, in 2016 was around 68% of tax receipts. The modicum of interest rate hikes plus the resulting slowdown 
uh, not even a full recession that led to softening tax receipts uh, under the latter years, or excuse me, the, the, uh, the, the Trump administration, that number went just the true interest expense went from 68% of tax receipts to 86% of tax receipts with the Fed taking rates up. Uh, I think it was uh, two and a quarter. I think they went from zero to two and a quarter, if I remember right. So whatever that works out to uh, nine, nine hikes, maybe. Uh, I think I think that's the right. At any rate, um, so you saw this significant increase um, uh, in sort of this just that part of uh, of 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 the funding, and and now we we regulated money market funds into buying the short end of the curve. Um, we we regulated banks into buying treasuries. Uh, we pushed uh, some of the government's expenditures in in healthcare off onto people in Obamacare. You are still getting a benefit from that. Uh, the point is, is that if you have a recession, tax receipts are going to fall. Uh, if you raise rates, the true interest expense is going to rise. And right now, we're you know true interest expense alone is right around 100 percent of tax receipts with receipts at all time highs. Tr- uh, the defense number is another 20 percent on top of that. And so you're, what you're going to find is is um, that 100% that is true interest expense uh, as a percent of tax receipts is going to quickly go to 110, 120%. Uh, the, the defense part will be 130, 140%. And at that point, the, uh, the U.S. government will f- and the Fed will face a choice, which is um, the dollar is going to rally sharply. Uh, as the U.S. government effectively will be crowding out global dollar markets with their with their borrowing to cover just that part of the deficit. Deficits will be blowing out, right? The U.S. federal deficit will be 15% of GDP, 20% of GDP uh, in a recession. Um, so you either rates are going to need to rise to attract the amount of private capital. They'll be pulling it away. So you're going to be driving the dollar up. Uh, rates either won't fall or they'll rise in that recession, again, because you're going to need the private sector balance sheet to move to finance three to four trillion dollar deficits. Um, um, or you're going to have to slash uh, treasury spending, cut rates, uh, or you're going to have to cut stimulus uh, in the treasury has been doing, which is going to worsen the recession, um, which will increase the deficit. Or you're going to have to... Uh, Tell baby boomers uh, who vote, obviously, um, that starting next month, we're going to start skipping every other month of Social Security payments. Um, or tell Treasury holders we're going to have to start skipping every other quarter of interest payments. Uh, or in the midst of this intense stand down with Russia, you're going to have to go to the Defense Department and say, we need to cut the defense budget in half. Um, or the Fed's going to have to print it. So it's really one of two scenarios. I, I think. Cuts of anything are out the window. I think I think those are not going to happen for political reasons. Um, so it's basically dollar up, rates probably down for a second, and then up uh, in a recession. Um, or the Fed prints a difference. And as reality, I think that it, it could very well be a, a question of path, which then goes back to okay, dollar up, rates up. Treasury market not working, and then the Fed prints the difference, and how long that path is from point A to point B. Uh, but really, the path is strong dollar, risk off, bond, you know, stocks down, bonds down, houses down, everything down. Um, basically, again, when your debt is this high, you go into a debt death spiral. You're going to have tax receipts down, which means you're not. You're going to have to. Pr- you know, 
your hundred percent of true interest expense goes to one twenty, goes to one forty, goes to one sixty. Um, you know, if you if the Fed doesn't step in. So basically, that would that would be sort of your two. If you run those two out, um, your two policy options. In this environment, you're asking what will go up, and it's really a, a very finite list. Now, if you asked what will outperform, oh sure, I could tell you that you might want to be in healthcare stocks or you might want to be in consumer staples um, or you might want to be in companies with very strong balance sheets, you know, that those companies will survive. Consumer staples, we always need to buy soap and toothpaste. Healthcare is going to be always a a, a need no matter what the state of the economy is. But that doesn't mean they're going to go up. That just means you're going to lose less money with those is all it really means. And that's really not the game I don't think any of us want to play is how do I manage my losses? It's how do I find stuff that's going to go up? And in this kind of environment, it's going to be really hard to find stuff that's going to go up unless we're fundamentally off on the environment, you know, and there is a ceasefire and Russia pulls out and goes away and the flow of grains and the flow of oil to the West resumes like it was a month ago. And it was like this never happened. Now, if that happens, then we, we, could, we could have a different scenario, but I don't see that likely happening. So you only have a hard few choices. You know, gold, commodities, that kind of thing. And then you've got options that you could look at to try and manage losses because the market is just not going to take well to the kind of environment we're talking about. Jim, what do you think will go down the most? First of all, let's say anything that's levered, anything that is more speculative, understanding that one big speculative crowd, which is non-profitable tech, the archetype stocks, those are down, what, 60%, 65% from their highs a year ago. Okay, you know, they can go down some more, but they, they, there's already been a big a big whack that's taken on them. The, the group that I look at, that I worry about all the time, and warning, because I hate this group passionately, is the financials and the banks. Uh, I think that their business model's all off, which is why crypto's going to fix that. But nevertheless, they're levered, and they're, they're, also, um, they're also dependent upon a stable economy. And they're dependent upon functional and rational markets. And if you don't, if you don't have some of those, I think that the banking system, I think that the financials are going to have a tough go of it uh, over the next couple of quarters. And you've seen that. Uh, banks did very well into the end of the year. And then they did a giant U-turn as things started to turn south uh, as well. So I would say, yeah, banks would probably be up on the list, would be very high on the list. Anything else speculative, although I, 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 at this point, I don't know if I necessarily want to say, here's another reason to kick ARC, because it's already kicked, been kicked enough as, as it is. I'm not saying it's now bombed out enough to be a buy, but it, it might be closer to being a buy than a sell at this point. It's still too early to buy it. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, and I, the fact that the audience should know, though, that something down 60%, can still go down 60%. You know, it's not like, oh, it's gone down 60%. It can only go down 40% more. It can go down 90% after 60%. Luke, I want to ask you the same question. It could go down Yeah. It could go down 60% and then 60% again, of course. Yes. Review yes. Luke. In the environment you envision where the Fed eases again, perhaps even enacts yield curve control. Is that constructive for risk assets like, let's say, the S&P 500? Because when you said what you thought would do well, I think you said commodities, gold, and the dollar. You didn't say stocks, which made me think that you didn't think stocks would do particularly well. But maybe I misinterpreted you. No, yeah, no. That was in case of of a recession. Basically, if we have a recession, I want to own, you know, I want to own gold dollars. That's about it. 
because in a recession, you're going to start to have concerns about the treasury market. It's going, it's going to wobble the way it did in March 2020 and the way it's been wobbling in last week more in a more pronounced manner. Uh, and, and I think people are going to understand the implications of that at, at that. Whenever the treasury market wobbles, I think people are already starting to think, okay, I don't know exactly when, but the Fed's going to have to to do something about this in weeks, months, but not years. I, I confused myself because the first question I asked was, what do you think performs well in Jim's scenario, which is a recession, and you, you didn't list stocks. But in your scenario of broad-based inflation, like buoyed, you do think all risk assets sort of generally do well. Yeah, I think you would get a vicious yeah, yeah, yeah. sector rotation. You know, again, you've started, you sort of already seen it in a big way. Um, start right with 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 the high high flying growth tech down and uh, industrials and commodities up. I th I think you'd continue to see that type of uh, dynamic, and I think stocks broadly would do well. You'd probably get. You know, I think a few of the big tech names actually do well too. The Microsofts of the world, the Googles of the world. You know, where you're basically, you know, you buy Microsoft and Google, you're buying, you know, Defense Department CIA, right? I mean, it's it's uh, you're you're buying America. So, um, I I think those would do well, but I think it would broadly be sort of a stocks up when, but within stocks, a, a vicious sector rotation towards things that do better in. Uh, uh, commodity strength, dollar weakness. Do you think that we've reached peak geopolitical premium? Uh, Jim, let's start with you. No, I don't think we've reached it yet because I think what's coming next is a, is a, um, a national security concern. I think what we've learned from the from going back to coronavirus, you know, initially with uh, the import uh, exports out of China and now with Russia, is that we're going to start to see a rethink about the whole supply chain. Uh, we can't rely on, or nor should we rely on, getting stuff that's vital from unstable places. You know, Luke, you mentioned it, you know, that Biden is talking to Venezuela about getting more oil. Why is he talking to the frackers in, in Texas instead about getting more oil, as opposed to talking to, you know, let's go find somebody who's worse than Russia to go fix, fill the hole that we're missing from Russia um, right now. It's talking to the Saudis about getting more oil. Um, it, it, along those same lines, we all talking about what does this mean for China and China looking at Taiwan and Taiwan has Taiwan Semi and they make the majority of semiconductors in the world. And that is a critically important national security need is semiconductors. And of course, the joke is, is that if China ever did move on Taiwan, there would be no interruption of semiconductors out of Taiwan. After they put this little tracking program in it, you can have all the semiconductors you want uh, out of China. And that's exactly what we have to be careful of. So I think what we're going to see is some level of deglobalization that is going to move forward from here. That's going to be a friction as well, too. Things won't be as efficient as we trade off certainty and safety for maximum efficiency. Um, so I don't think we're necessarily at the end of the, uh, of the geopolitics. And furthermore, at the day we're recording, and who knows where we're going to be in a week, um, we don't know where this whole thing with, with the Ukraine and Russia is going to wind up uh, being as well, too, uh, at this point. So uh, the answer to your short answer to your question is no. For 10 years, Defense Department's been, been warning, we're borrowing money from China to build weapons to face down China. Uh, it's not a sustainable strategy. And... 
Uh, most people didn't listen until COVID when we said, hey, we need masks. And everyone said, well, ask China. And China said, yep, just wait till we get billed and then we'll get take care of you. Um, and uh, so, so I think COVID, as, as painful and tragic as it was, sparked uh, in, in terms that anyone could understand uh, how vulnerable supply chains have been. Now, the, you know, I tweeted something about this the other day, the view that, you know, gosh, how can we have so little leverage with Russia that we've got to go beg Venezuela and Iran for oil? And the view that the dollar uh, is still a net benefit for the United States as structured post-71, these are mutually exclusive um, positions. They're, they're contradictory, mutually exclusive positions. And so the point is, is that... Um, if we're going to reshore stuff, and this kind of ties into that point that I, that I wrote about last week, we led led off the conversation with, and if globalization's done, disinflation's done, bond market, bull market's done, um, we're going to need to reshore stuff. It's going to be inflationary. Um, it's probably going to be very inflationary. Uh, and that then ties back into this um, sovereign balance sheet question, right? Every 100 basis points that the Fed raises rates is 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 nine percent of tax receipts pro forma for the United States, um, and that's assuming no decline in tax receipts from rising rates. And we know that tax receipts are highly interest rate sensitive, and so we're in this position where geopolitically we need to do these things. It's crystal clear to policymakers we need to do these things. Um, the dollar is not going to be able to trade in the current zip code where it's trading if we want to do these things. The dollar's got to go down 20, 30, 40% from here if we want to do these things. Um, and when that drives inflation, if we actually do those things, uh, the sovereign balance sheet can't be allowed to respond to the resulting inflation. The Fed's going to have to cap it. It's So basically, I think... What it points to is the need for the U.S. to move to much more explicit wartime footing, basically industrial policy. And you've seen hints of it. And here, too, the U.S. is trying to figure out what it wants to be when it grows up, right? We we want to be a free market. We don't want to be like China. We want to defeat China. Um, but free markets aren't going to cut it. You're going to have to cap yields. You're going to have to weaken the dollar. Uh, you're going to have to change the structure of the system. We've seen little bits of it. When Biden says, I want to give $50 billion to semiconductor makers, and we're going to put a Taiwan semiconductor facility in Arizona, and uh, there's, there's another facility, I think it's uh, uh, Samsung going into Texas, and you have Intel CEO coming out and saying, I want to make Columbus, Ohio, one of the biggest semiconductor manufacturing uh, places in the world. Hey, these things are great. These things are 180 degree opposite of the currency system we've all been running in for the disinflationary currency system for Americans that we've all been running in for the last 50 years. And so it's a little bit sort of big, but my point is, is that they're going to have to, I think, get very explicit and geopolitical. Basically, I think we're going to have to move to basically World War II wartime footing if we want to accomplish what a lot of people are now saying we want to accomplish, right? This is no longer just Defense Department saying this doesn't make sense. Jim, the effective cancellation uh, by the Federal Reserve and, and correspondent U.S. banks or U.S. allied banks of the Russian central bank's reserves, that, you know, that really taught a lesson. You, 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 know, you think you have $100 billion, but actually you don't. It can sort of get canceled. 
And you know, does that make crypto uh, more alluring? Because you know, like gold, it's not you know, it's not someone else's uh, liability. Do you think that this this is an important moment for crypto, or or you know, doesn't really change your views that much? I think you've got to go back further. Hayden Adams, uh, he's the founder of Uniswap, the largest decentralized exchange. In late January, he tweets out that Chase canceled him. They basically closed his bank account without warning or reason, sent him a check for all his money and said, go find another bank. And he said that this is happening to people in the crypto space all over the place. The banks are looking at upstart competitors in crypto and saying, well, you're just not going to do business with us. Then in early January, you had uh, GoFundMe closed the trucker's account. And initially they said, you have to request a refund if you gave the trucker's money. Otherwise, we will give the money to a charity of our choice. That's theft. That's actual theft of somebody's money. Now, under social media pressure, they relented. Then you had the Emergencies Act in Canada, where they went through and they said, if you were one of the trucker protests, we're going to freeze your bank account. If you donated to them, we're going to have this thing called a retroactive law, a retroactive law, and we're going to freeze your account too because you donated to them. It was legal when you did it, but today we've decided it's not legal and we're going to go back in time and punish you for it. And then we had Russia. Boy, this is better than if the Super Bowl was nothing but crypto ads. This is a better advertisement for the problems with the current system. As I'd like to say, your net worth, my net worth, Luke's net worth, everybody who's listening's net worth here is zero. All of our money is owned by our financial institution. And we trust they have a little ledger that will allow us use of some of that money that we deposited in this. Now, you may agree that the truckers were wrong and that Russia deserves it. And I'm not going to push back on that. But what we do know about governments is when you give them this kind of power, eventually it gets abused. And now we're talking about, it's one thing to throw you off of Twitter because you said something impolite. But it's a whole nother thing to say that because we don't like what you did or thought or said, you're now, we're going to now take all your money away from you. So I definitely think that as we move forward from here, this is going to be a powerful incentive for people to find a way to protect themselves by putting their money in a place that is outside the reach of government and a cold storage wallet that is stored on the blockchain is a good place to start looking for that. Luke, what do you think about that? The, the weaponization of the dollar that, that we've seen, um, you know, taking a lot of Russian banks off SWIFT and the, like the cancellation of reserves uh, uh, from the Russian central bank, do you think that will hasten de-dollarization? And in particular, on the theme of crypto, do you think it, it will you know, make, pe- make reserve managers more willing to adopt Bitcoin as a reserve asset? I do think it'll hasten de-dollarization. I think it uh, of of FX reserves in particular. Uh, I do think it's. I mean, I think what the U.S. and EU did with Russia's central bank reserves was an advertisement. <laughs> I actually did. I actually wrote that it was an advertisement to go buy gold and Bitcoin. Um, I, I think we're also going to look back in two years, you know, six months, two years, three years at what they did. And I think it's every bit as important as what happened on August 15, 1971, when the U.S. closed the gold window. Um, if you don't have free and private use of your money, you are not a democracy. You are not free. You have no rights. And it's as simple as that. Uh, they can make you central. Whoever controls the money controls you. And the rest is semantics. The rest is all for show. It's all kabuki theater. You can go hit the thing on the voting booth. doesn't friggin' matter. And so I, I think it's literally that important. Um, 
And, I mean, you can see why there's the fight around that, right? I mean, we're talking about political power, political questions. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a sensitive topic. But, I, I, yeah, I, I think what we've seen transpire year to date has been a tremendous advertisement for, for Bitcoin and for gold. Can I ask a question to you, Luca? I agree with you about the de-dollarization aspect of it. But what I struggle with is... Yes, gold. Yes, Bitcoin. But de-dollarization, de-dollar to what? Euros, the yuan. Do we really want to use a, a, a semi-convertible currency as it to the British pound, to the yen? What are we going to de-dollarize to? I think what we're watching is is the system evolve uh, at the national level. Certainly, is uh, oil and and commodities are priced in euros, priced in yuan, priced in dollars. Um, because it's a, it's a matter of national security for the, EU, for the European Union and for China uh, to be able to print currency for energy. Uh, otherwise, they're going to run out of dollars if it's all priced in dollars. Um, and then settle it, I think, in gold at a floating rate, like gold that floats in all of those currencies. And, and you can see China open up the Shanghai Gold Exchange International Board in September 2014, uh, it came out six months later that the Russians had be, already been selling oil in yuan at that point. And so you can see the flows. I mean, the, the, I, the yuan is absolutely convertible on a very limited basis, though. <laughs> it's convertible through gold in Shanghai. So if you have offshore yuan, uh, you can take your offshore yuan and walk away with gold. It's also convertible through oil, through the yuan oil contract. As you, if you look at the flows of that, you can take dollars in, turn them into yuan, trade it there, and you can choose the currency in which you want to pull out. But what that does is, is basically makes the yuan convertible on a limited basis through gold and through oil. Um, and so I think that's where this de-dollarization de of FX reserves, I think, is really the best way to think about it. Of We're going, and we've seen over the, since 2014, global central banks on net um, Foreign official buying of treasuries is on net about 80 billion. Foreign official buying, central bank buying of gold is 260 billion. So they've bought three times more gold than treasuries already. So this is something that's already well underway. Um, so it's not something new they need to, to, to any encouragement. Now they've just said all those other reserves that represent 78% of your aggregated saving, we can take them anytime we deem you a bad actor. So I think I think that's really when I when when we when I say de-dollarization to me, that's what it you know that's 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 how I think about it is how I'm watching the system evolve. And Luke, is it the only is it the singular currency hegemon whatever it is the yuan or the euro is it that's the only currency that's on the gold standard or is every currency also on the gold standard like it was in the 1920s and before? Uh, the head of the PBOC wrote a white paper three pages in 2009, citing uh, John Keynes's Bancor. It's ironic as everybody's a Keynesian. Nobody looks at Keynes's Bancor proposal at Bretton Woods, which is, yeah, every currency uh, is is uh, convertible into Bancor, but international deficits and surpluses are um, uh, compensated in a neutral reserve asset that floats in all currencies. So instead of these imbalances we've seen grow over the last fifty years since the U.S. closed the gold window, uh, what you have then is is you know the U.S. runs trade deficits like we're running got to be settled in gold. And, and the more, you know, Americans have to sell dollars and buy gold uh, to settle this. And the Chinese on the other side of it aren't going to be able to manipulate their currency 
to take American jobs, to take American factories, uh, to, to engage in um, mercantilism. Um, they're, the yuan will strengthen against the dollar, and they're going to have to develop a consumer class as the yuan strengthens. If they're not just going to be able to manipulate the currency rate artificially low uh, to uh, industrially develop, because it was all fun and games while they were industrially developing. Now the Americans are basically paying for our military and paying for their military while we try to develop a military to fight their military. And, and, and really, it's all, the, it's all a symptom of the currency problem. So I think it will be, uh, there won't be a hegemon anymore. There will be, um, you know, the five SDR currencies. Everyone's going to run. You, you'll see currencies trade on balance of payments fundamentals, which hasn't happened for the dollar in a very, very long time. Hasn't happened for a lot of currencies in a very, very long time. Gentlemen, we're going to have to leave it there. You've been so generous with your time. Amazing how quickly you know, 80 minutes transpires when, when listening to you. Thank you so much for sharing your research. Uh, Luke on Twitter, you know, people can follow you at Luke Groman. Uh, Jim, you are uh, at Bianco Research. And uh, you know, definitely if people liked what they hear, and I'm betting that they did, uh, you know, they can definitely check out your, your research uh, services. My final question, five words or less, 10 words or less, let's say. Tomorrow's inflation reading, the CPI reading, Hot or very hot? Jim, your thoughts? <laughs> uh, I'll go with hot because most of it came before the war. But March's number is a different story. Okay. Yeah, I agree with Jim. Wonderful. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much. And for everyone watching, thank you so much. Uh, uh, please subscribe to the Blockworks YouTube channel and uh, so you can stay tuned for upcoming content. Have a good day.